Welcome to the Lucky Titan Podcast. Here you will learn how to fill your favorite platform with tons of your dream customers from some of the world's top entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Josh Tapp. Now let's get started. What is up, everybody? Josh Tapp here again. Welcome back to the Lucky Titan. And today we're here with Jim Barnish. And this guy is the founder of Orchid Black. His website is orchid.black, which was one of the hardest URLs for me to remember because I want to say orchid.black.com, which obviously makes zero sense. But I'm super excited to have Jim here because this guy has helped um, in the completion of over 100 exits. Okay, This is such an interesting thing for a lot of people in our space because most people who are in the digital space don't ever think about what their exit strategy is. So I want to talk to you today, Jim, about that. So first off, Jim, say what's up to everybody, and then we'll hop in and start talking about exits. What's up, everybody? Happy to be here. Excited to uh, talk about exits. Let's do it, man. Well, so this is this is such an interesting thing for me because the, the past year, Jim, you know, we talked about this, is I've been in the process of acquiring another company. And we've had about four fall through, and we're working on one right now. And it's not because they didn't want to sell these other ones fell through because they just didn't fit well <laughs> with our, with our company. There was just some little thing with each of them that ended up causing the deal to fall through. And, and a lot of companies, what I've found, especially in our space, don't even think about what their exit is. So let's, I, I want to ask you first, what's your take on an exit and what should an exit look like for a digital entrepreneur? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, ultimately well, in terms of what an exit should look like, it's uh it's very different than what an exit is talked about as right we talk about multiples of revenue or multiples of ebitda as, as core exit metrics because that's what we know and that's how we're able to compare deals and that's what's shared quite frankly to make companies look really great um problem is that's just the beginning and it's really like table stakes at the end of the day is looking at companies at the at the multiple of ebitda the multiple of revenue um, what exits are really about are um, transferable value to the acquirer. Um, what is going to make that acquirer look up and want to buy you rather than having you force your hand to sell your business, which being bought and being sold are not at all the same things. And what it really comes down to is um, every layer of value that you see in a company are the same layers that we look at as we build a company, right? We create a strategy at the top that we then hire talent around, that then builds a product or service for us, that then drives revenue. And at the bottom is our operations. We, we run the business, right? It's the same way as we look at value creation. I mentioned multiple of EBITDA or multiple of revenue are kind of where companies stop looking at what value is. Um, there's all of this product and talent and strategic value that's on top of that, which is the reason you see crazy valuations like Microsoft's purchase of LinkedIn, or you know, all these other more strategic technology acquisitions that happen in the marketplace. And what that comes down to is the ultimate realization of what that value might mean for the acquirer when they take a look at your business. It's not just the revenue. It's not just your profitability. It's the way your product fits with theirs, right? Um, is there a one plus one equals three equation that connects, that they're able to sell your product to their customers and vice versa? Um, is there talent value where there's more than just a new skill or a new opportunity, but really the ability for your talent to augment theirs and in, in a buy that looks very much like a new team that's part of that acquisition? Um, and then most importantly, is there strategic value and inspirational value and not just things like your mission, your vision, and your values, but 
the way that that translates into moats that the acquiring company might be able to gain, right? Competitive advantage um, or things that are totally transformational in a way that company uh, might be might be acquired. Um, and so there's you can tell there's passion here, right? Um, there's a lot of different ways that you can slice it, but ultimately it really all boils down to what transferable value is. Yeah, and I, and I love that because that last term you just said, transferable value, you know, and you kind of talked about a moat. I just want to explain that for our audience if they haven't ever heard that term, right? Building a moat around your company, like like Jim said, is that that competitive advantage that you have or that strategic advantage over your competition. And you know, what you're talking about is is should should you be buying a company just because the numbers make sense? Or should be buying it because it's going to provide you that moat, maybe, or maybe you could provide them that moat that's going to make them strategic um, and, and more competitive in their environment. So I, I want to ask you this, Jim. You know, having done over a hundred um, acquisitions, you know, and helped having done that as well. So with an acquisition, you know, most of the people listening to this probably have never even thought about selling their company. Right? It's their baby. It's something they've been trying to get past that million dollar mark. Um, at what point would you tell people to start looking? at potentially selling your company. Yeah, I uh, I do want to be very clear. It's my team that's done over 100 acquisitions, not just me. I wish I had that backup to my name, but um, someday I will. Um, I'm only a fraction of that. But that being said, um, the the way that um, uh, the way that value creation happens beyond that transferable value is um, certainly um, a first step, which is, are you looking to build a lifestyle business or are you looking to build a high growth business, right? And that's a really tricky thing, especially in your early stages to figure out as a founder of what you want. Do you want an easy road where you can you know, bring in some profitability and have a business that sustains itself? Or do you want to have an exit that connects to what might be a high growth company and a really meaningful exit on the other side of that, right? Legacy, wealth, financial freedom, things like that are terms that are often thrown around. Um, so first figuring out, do you want to build a lifestyle business or do you really you know, want to build a high growth business that has an acquisition attached to it? Beyond that, um, getting at peace that founders are like athletes at the end of the day. And you know, this is a new term or new uh, comparison for me to think about that my executive coach turned me on to, which is founders um, have a failure rate of 95%, right? Fact, right? Most companies do not succeed. Um, most athletes don't get to the professional level, um, and probably even less than 95%, right? But uh, at the end of the day, um, there's this philosophy around going hard and hustling and being super devoted to your cause and playing to win. Um, the difference that took me a really long time to find out is beyond playing to win, there's, there's training, right? And there's recovering. And, and then most importantly, they're celebrating little wins around the, along the way. And as founders, as CEOs, we're not taught to do that, right? And so that is one core thing, I think, that everyone needs to internalize as a founder is even athletes, even the athletes at the Olympic level, at the professional level, they take time to train, they take time to celebrate little wins, and they take time to recover. And it's okay to do that. Um, but in order to really realize that fundamental aspect, that connects to founder burnout. It also connects to what type of business do you want to build? That's why I went down that little rant, if you will, around founder burnout, around the comparison to athletes, because you got to figure out what type of athlete that you want to be. Do you want to be 
um, the high school athlete that makes it really, you know, is really cool and has a lot of really awesome opportunity in front of them and then ultimately goes on to something else? Or do you want to be that professional athlete, that Olympic ball player that ultimately takes things to the next level that knows that there's a major failure rate attached to it? And that really needs to focus in on how do I recover? How do I train? How do I prevent burnout? And ultimately, what does an exit look like for me on the other side of building this? Well, and, and I love that explanation. I want to kind of tie it back into that concept we were talking about earlier about the moats, because that's really what you guys have specialized in is like, let's, let's build you a moat. That's not just a financial moat, right? That protects you from your competition or protects you from the market conditions, but mm -hmm. it's more of, of the people, like you said, avoiding burnout and finding the, the right people, putting them in the right place with, uh, within the team. And I wanted to ask you this because, you know, having you know, Orchid Black is, is really a company built around helping get the right people in the right place. It seems like, <laughs> um, so for you, Jim, what's, what's kind of been one of the big qualifying factors that you found for actually finding the right person? Yeah, that's a, it's a really, uh, really good question. Um, I came from the venture world was my last gig prior to Orchid Black venture capital, um, and saw how many companies had so much raw material, um, but were solving it uh, solving any opportunities that they had, any gaps that they have through more capital, more capital, more capital, right? Um, and this philosophy has always emerged from technology companies around the unicorn uh, and becoming that next billion dollar company by throwing more capital and more capital and more capital. And in some cases that works when you have all the right things in the right places. And in some cases that works by throwing capital against the wall and hoping that it works out. But there's a lot of opportunity um, that the VC model does not uh, attack. And that's that's these companies that have a lot of raw material that know that they want to grow fast, but they understand that they also want to grow smart and that they don't want to solve the problem with more capital, more capital, more capital, thus diluting founders and becoming not so founder friendly after all, um, but really focused on growing the right way, putting the right elements in place to grow successfully, um, building according to what stage of company maturity you're at, you know, getting to product market fit, building inefficiencies and then focusing on scale um, and keeping in mind that it's okay to not have to have a ton of capital to throw at everything. It's okay to build smart and then fast. And ultimately it really relates to what problem are you trying to solve for your company and what kind of business are you trying to build? And most founders would rather have 50% of a hundred million dollar company than they would 0.01% of a billion dollar company. It's just the way the cookie crumbles. So I think as we're thinking about um, what people want to build and what people want to do and what an exit looks like on the other side of, of that build, that's one really important factor to think about is don't just grow fast, but also grow smart. Well, and, and let me ask you this because with you and the way you've been growing your company, how do you feel like you've been growing smart and fast? Because you obviously have done both, but how do you feel like you're actually doing it the smart way? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, um, the it it starts with no matter what industry you're in. You know, we focus on SaaS companies, but we're a services provider, right? At the end of the day, um, but no matter what side of the ball you're in, no matter what market you're serving, it always focuses on uh, establishing product market fit before you really focus on scaling. I think that's kind of what all that looks into uh, the the general philosophy of of nailing your nailing your niche, if you will, which is Sometimes something that we as business owners just always look past. We know that other companies need to do it. 
We know that Apple isn't a swimwear company or doesn't sell apples. We know that steakhouses aren't known for having the best organic food. Um, but ultimately, we think that we, especially in our early stages, need to be everything to everybody and that we need to do that in order to help as much as we can and turn profitability as soon as we can. And what we don't realize is that it, it really hurts us to not nail our niche. And so, you know, what we do with ourselves and with our clients is focus on first nailing that niche. I've seen so many companies waste millions of dollars in sales and marketing spend and not be positioned properly. And, and I've made those mistakes on the spending side a number of times as well, not just others. Um, and a lot of that starts with taking an honest look at the pain you're solving for the solution or moat that, that's connected to what you're bringing to the market and some real proof points and identifiable, uh, identifiable targets and the unique approach that you're bringing that really positions you and allows for you to not only nail your niche, not only nail those targets, but build a programmatic approach towards your own go-to-market strategy to then test and iterate on to be able to see the success that a lot of companies are seeing in high growth environments. And that's growing smart and growing fast. Yeah, I love that. Well, and I feel like you guys have done such a good job with that because you have worked with so many different you know, industries and helping them determine what their exit strategy is and everything. And, and I want to kind of turn the conversation a little bit to what we were talking about pre-interview about the you know, how you're actually hiring people. And you talked about getting to that 1% and how you're getting there. So walk us through how you're getting the right candidates. Like what's your strategy to actually get to that point? Yeah, um, it starts with, uh, I mean, I, I think the question's largely around the attraction and retention of talent at the end of the day, right? Um, and it really starts, um, especially as you're thinking in the early days with um, a list that anyone can Google and find around toughest challenges for business owners, which you look nearer at the top and you'll always find, find hiring and recruiting and retaining and whatever word we want to talk about in relation to talent. Um, at the top of that list. Um, in today's environment, as we focus on bringing in millennial talent, uh, that just ex expands because it's a new new generation of people that we don't understand oftentimes as business owners, depending on what generation you are in, but can be really high highlighted when you look at three simple facts. 55% of millennials are not engaged at work in any environment. 42% of millennials change jobs every two years or less. And there's $30 billion that's wasted in the U.S. economy alone around turnover costs from just millennials. That's a lot. That's a, there's some big numbers. And when we look at that um, internally for ourselves and, and with our clients, because uh, building a business of qualified, talented people that are going to treat your clients like you would treat them as a founder is not easy at all. We all know this, um, but it's even harder in the earlier stages of a company where um, you've got a million things to do, you're wearing a million different hats. And this thing called hiring and bringing in talent becomes this time-consuming process that you almost want to outsource in many cases, but it's the most important thing that you can do. Um, and you've got everything working against you because not only do you have a million things to do, but you don't have the cash to compete with these larger companies, right? You don't have, you don't have the ability to pay what Google would pay for the same level of talent. And um, and you add the time-consuming factor to that, and it's it's just how do I do it? Like, what do I? How do I bring in the next person? Um, but the, the crazy 
thing that people forget is that, especially when you think about what millennials are motivated by, but really just people in general, what you do have on your side is the ability to let your most talented people grow from the inside, right? To let them develop and, and drive that development and, and treat them the same way that um, you want them to treat your clients at the end of the day and grow within the organization and make sure that they don't want to leave every two years and make sure that they are engaged and maybe even give them a little bit of the upside, all right? Whether that's equity or something else, because that's huge <laughs> for somebody that wants to actually do well in the company that they're contributing to. And so, you know, when we look at this for both ourselves um, and what we've done, you know, we have much as reasonably as reasonably as possible. We try to think about meritocracy from the top down, right? Um, and our business model, the way we interact with clients, is very incentive based, very incentive focused. And so, we like to do the same thing with folks internally. Um, and, and even though we can't compete with the McKinseys of the world or the best private equity firms on the planet in terms of compensation. We can do very unique things that allows them to participate in ways that they would never be able to participate in any other sort of company in the McKinsey's or the large private equity firms of the world. Um, and quite frankly, that opportunity to grow is whether it's within Orchid Black or within cl our clients or just in general in one of your startups. That is so awesome to be able to think about growing in a, in a startup and so awesome to think about being the driving force towards somebody else being an entrepreneur. Um, that is one of the most rewarding things that you will find as you're developing people in your organization. And you almost want to encourage them to go start their own thing because they've done such a great a great job helping you get your thing off the ground. Um, and so, you know, that's really the way that we serve it up uh, with ourselves and with clients and the retention of uh, the attraction and retention of talent is a big part of that. Um, you mentioned the top 1%. Um, you know, us selecting the right talent, given our boutique nature is so important for us that that time consuming process of hiring, of finding the right people um, is the majority of my job. It's, uh, you know, I get to do fun things like this and meet partners and, you know, help clients where I can. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm spending as much time as I can finding the next talent that's going to take care of the next clients that we're going to get in the door because we are going fast and we've got to make sure to be relentlessly focused on, on quality. Um, and so, you know, that is one thing as a takeaway that I would want everyone to have is don't overlook the time you spend on talent, um, whether that's attracting or retaining the talent, because if you bring the right people in and you take care of them, everything else will work like clockwork. It's not that easy, but it's pretty, it's pretty close. Right. So that's, uh, that's all I got to say. <laughs> well, it was a good, good spiel. So I like it. So I want to ask you this because this is kind of where the, the argument enters. Do you, do you hire based off of talent or, or excuse me, off of skills or off of personality? Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's kind of where the argument comes into play here a little bit, but I, I personally sit on the side of, I care that you actually fit culturally and that you're actually a good person and you have good morals and good standing. Uh, with with everybody else in the company, and we'll just train you on the skills. That's my personal belief, but you know, it seems to be kind of your your standard as well for your company, as you mentioned, you know, making them become entrepreneurial and everything. But how are you kind of balancing that, where you're actually bringing people in who have the capability, so you don't have to train them from the ground up? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great great question. Um, and it starts to me, it's it's almost like gates, right? Um, if, and I think of it as aptitude and attitude, right? Just to, to have two words that sound pretty similar. Um, if you don't have the attitude, right? I 
don't care if you're the best person on the planet. I don't care if you have the aptitude. It is literally a checkbox in our hiring process that you meet the culture, that you are focused on learning, that you are not so focused on the exits that you've had or the the great work that you've done in your career, um, leaning on what you've done. It's actually about what you can do now and how excited you are to bring that knowledge to people that don't have it. That is ap- that is aptitude. So whether it's everyone here is learning, everyone here is a intellectual has a, an incredible amount of intellectual honesty, which is one of our values. If you don't embody being able to know what you know, and also being able to know what you don't know, then this isn't the place for you. Um, and there's everyone doesn't know some things. I don't care how many exits you have. I don't care how many companies you built, how much revenue you've driven, value creation, whatever it is. There are things that you don't know, um, and there's probably more things that you don't know than what you know. <laughs> Uh, and so ultimately aptitude is first, uh, or sorry, attitude is first, then aptitude comes. And we have a really interesting mix in our talent philosophy of very senior level folks who have, you know, had incredible exits, don't necessarily need to be working all the time and bringing what they've done to the table because they've gotten a lot of exits. They've, they've, they've done a lot in their, their history, but they're excited to bring that knowledge and that hands-on execution to other companies. Um, and that is so hard to find people who've been there, done that, who don't need to do much, but ultimately just can't get it out of their system. That <laughs> They're so passionate about building businesses that they can't stop. Um, and so that's one group. And then the rest are, you know, really uh, hungry, high aptitude or high attitude, um, you know, have some levels of aptitude in, in their core skill set, but ultimately folks that are looking to learn the rest and whether their journey is being a founder themselves or entrepreneur or their journey is uh, becoming our next our next level operating partner, our, our next senior talent, if you will. Um, it doesn't really matter to me as long as they're here for the journey and they're excited to create a lot of value for companies along the way. Um, and so again, you know, bringing it back to the basics, number one is always attitude. Number two is aptitude, but aptitude can also be really important. You got to have the right people in the right roles. Well, and I appreciate you sharing that, Jim, because you know most of you who are listening to this interview might be saying, "I want to work with a company like that, right, where you know that every employee is hired that that way, or every partner's employed that way." It's such a cool methodology, and I think that you're spot on with that because of the the attitude makes it, it's everything. <laughs> the, the skills can be learned, um, and a lot of times the high skill people can be put in in uh, even lower skill positions and they'll, they'll still thrive because maybe that's what they're interested in is, is the contribution side. So everybody make sure you go check out orchid.black. It's not.com. It's dot black. Make sure you go check that out. Um, and also Jim is the guy that you want to connect with. So he has a LinkedIn profile. Um, I'm not going to read it off to you because it's a little bit long. I'm going to add it in the description to the, to the show notes. Um, but make sure you go check out his LinkedIn profile. This guy does some amazing content. So Jim, could you give us one final shout out and give us one final parting piece of guidance before we close up the show? Yeah, I would say um, building your business is 50% focused on growth in the business, 50% growth on personal mindset. And so whatever your system of doing that personal mindset is, mine is having an executive coach and focusing like hell on my fiance and and my family when I've got the time to do that. Um, Taking care of your yourself is a big part of the equation. And so don't forget that. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Lucky Titan podcast. If you learned anything from this or any other episode, make sure you rate it and share it with another entrepreneur it could help. Thanks again. And I'll catch you on the flip side.